these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we begin a new focus over the next four weeks. We're going to be looking at the topic of evangelism. This is one of these difficult things to do, a topical study. You jump into the middle of a passage. You don't always have the context of what has been said before. You don't have the context of what is coming after that. But prayerfully and very intentionally, I've tried to select passages of Scripture that would be succinct enough within themselves that it would be very difficult to take them out of context or to treat them haphazardly in our examination over the next few weeks. Beginning this week, our care groups will begin the study of the Nine Marks book on evangelism. Some of you have gone through that before. I think in uh, Paul and Tony's group, it's been many months ago, we're going to revisit that in both of our care groups this week. If you do not have a copy of this book, I do have copies available for you today. Even if you're not active in a care group and would still like to read this book, I have a copy for you today. It is an incredibly helpful book because it doesn't teach a program, it doesn't teach a practice as much as it, it tries to help us understand that we are to have about ourselves individually and our churches corporately a culture that prioritizes evangelism. So I will incorporate some of what Nine Marks says in their book in my messages, but I will not be teaching the book. It would be redundant to do so. My focus will be on attempting to understand what evangelism is and why it is important from a biblical perspective. Now, many times when we talk about evangelism, there is this browbeating, there is this guilt-inducing message, there is this finger-pointing, and I'm not trying to do that. I'm simply trying to emphasize the challenge that is mine and yours given to us in the Bible about the subject of evangelism. So my prayer is that this concerted time of study on evangelism will help us individually and corporately be more intentional in the area of evangelism. So let's read together Matthew chapter 4 verses 4 excuse me verses 18 through 22. And then I have quite a bit to say about this from these five very brief verses. Very familiar story. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother. In the boat was Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So part one in our four-week evaluation of evangelism is going to focus on the call. So there is this call that is initiated by Jesus to these two brothers and then another set of brothers. And what we don't get from the Gospel of Matthew or from Mark is that Jesus already knew Andrew and Peter. We are introduced to them in the Gospel of John. As a bit of a background, John the Baptist had begun his ministry He was making the way for the Lord. He was preaching the message of repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John had accumulated for himself many, many disciples. And what we learn from the Gospel of John is that Andrew and Peter 
were already interested in who John the Baptist was and the message that he was preaching. And so we would read, we would read together in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. Again, the next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak or heard him say this and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned, excuse me, and Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So this is a bit of a backdrop into the introduction of Jesus to these two individuals who were minding their own business, doing what they've done hundreds and hundreds of times before, casting a net into the water, hoping to catch some fish. Now, in this first meeting recorded in John, it's obvious that Jesus knows something that Peter and Andrew do not know, and that is simply this. Jesus has plans for them. They know nothing about these plans. They are just interested in Jesus by introduction of John the Baptist, and they've spent some time with him, and they are very, very interested in who this individual named Jesus actually is. So in our call to salvation, God has plans for us, and we don't know anything about those plans. Our task is not to evaluate the merit of the plan. It is not to challenge the plan. It is not to determine or discover the perceived benefit of the plan. We are simply called by God, and He fills in the blanks. And this is exactly what is going to take place in the lives of Peter and Andrew and the other disciples that Jesus calls to Himself. Now, as a way of continuing this backdrop, over the next few months, John the Baptist continues his ministry. He will later baptize Jesus. He will submit him, Jesus will submit himself to 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. John the Baptist will be arrested and jailed just about the time that Jesus begins his public ministry. It is after Jesus' first public teaching event that is recorded in both Matthew and in Mark that he makes this visit to Andrew and to Peter as they are casting their net into the water. They are actively fishing. Throwing a net into the water as Jesus calls out to them. Here's what we need to recognize is that Jesus didn't do anything by accident. This wasn't a coincidental meeting with Andrew and Peter. Jesus came to them for a purpose. He wasn't just on a stroll and said, hey, there's Andrew and Peter. I know Andrew and Peter. You know what I need to do? I need to get some people to follow me. That is not what Jesus was doing. He had begun his ministry. He had already began public teaching. And very providentially, very intentionally, he now encountered Andrew and Peter and he called out to them. He did not meet them or call out to them by accident. 
Now it is not known if James and John, the sons of Zebedee, graciously described as the sons of thunder in the Gospels. We do not know if they were also disciples of John the Baptist. They possibly could have been. But they were also fishermen. They are mending their nets a little bit away from where Andrew and Peter are. And Jesus providentially encounters them and He likely issues the very same call to them. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. So Jesus issues the call to follow. He said to them, follow me. Now as we look at this, it isn't very obvious to us in the English language as it is in the Greek language, but this call to follow is a command It is not a simple invitation. Jesus was not walking along the banks of the Sea of Galilee and just willy-nilly shouting out, Follow me, anyone who will. Come after me if you want. He's speaking a command to Andrew and Peter and then later to James and John. And this is a command to them to follow Him. Now, Andrew and Peter already had an idea about who Jesus was based upon what we learn in the Gospel of John that after being introduced to Him by John the Baptist, they said to Him, Rabbi or Teacher, where are you staying? And they spent the day with Him. They knew something about who Jesus was and it is very likely, as we would read in the Gospel of John, that they were convinced that this Jesus is in fact the Messiah. We thought it might have been John the Baptist. He's pointing to Jesus. And from everything we've learned in our time with Jesus, He appears to be in fact the Messiah that we as Jewish people have long been awaiting for. So to be a follower of Jesus is to be a disciple of Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a follower of Jesus. Now, many, many claim to be a disciple of Jesus, but the the intentionality or the consistency with which they follow Him is pretty debatable. But the terms are synonymous. To be a follower is to be a disciple. To be a disciple means that we are following Him. Now, there are three unique characteristics to this call that would not typically be understood by us as Gentiles. It would be very differently understood by Jewish people, most especially in this era. Now, as we think about who... Andrew and Peter understood Jesus to be, as a rabbi, these characteristics make a lot more sense. And this is a very, very um, interesting point of study for me, which is why I'm including it in this. So, the three unique characteristics of this call. Letter A, I'm sorry, I didn't get that. uh, It's still up there. Letter A, there is this choice to follow. Now, this is the rabbinic tradition. Jesus issued a command to follow, but in the rabbinic tradition, it is the choice of the student to follow if he wants to. A student would decide on his own if they wanted to submit themselves to the training provided by this rabbi. It was totally the student's choice. 
Now, since Andrew and Peter had already used the term rabbi in their understanding of who Jesus was, this command to follow is incredibly unique because Jesus isn't leaving the decision up to Andrew and Peter. He, as the rabbi, is saying, follow me. I am telling you to follow me. This decision is not yours to make. It is not a choice for you to consider. You aren't to go home and mull it around. You are to follow me. They weren't asked if they wanted to follow. They were simply commanded to follow him. Now we aren't told, this is interesting to me, we are not told about the, about the, about the salvation of any of the disciples. Unlike Paul, where he had this transformative experience on the road to Damascus, nowhere is it recorded where John, or James, or Peter, or Andrew, or any of the other original twelve disciples made a conscious decision to accept Christ as their Savior and submitted themselves to Him as the Messiah. It just isn't recorded. So this is very interesting to me. It probably means that Andrew and Peter and James and John had enough information and enough faith to be saved under the Messiah, under the Messianic authority of Jesus, but their salvation decision is nowhere recorded. So their salvation what they knew about Jesus and what they had committed to Him as a Messiah, their salvation required them to follow. I don't believe at all that when Jesus showed up on the banks of the Sea of Galilee and shouted out to Andrew and to Peter that they were saved. I don't believe that at all. I believe they were saved. It's not recorded for us in the Gospels when they were saved. And so when Jesus the rabbi shows up to these would-be disciples slash followers of his, he commands them to follow and they recognize this choice is not mine to make. The Master, the Messiah, is telling me to follow Him, and I don't have a say in the matter. Letter B, the second interesting characteristic in this call, is the object to follow. Now, we would have no concept of this, as a, of this at all, since we are not Jews, and we don't typically study the Jewish culture very, very thoroughly. But a rabbinic student, the chief allegiance of these students was to the Torah, not to the rabbi. What do you mean by that? Well, if you said, Rabbi, I want to study under you, your allegiance was not to the rabbi that was going to train you, your allegiance was to the Torah. The object that you would follow as a rabbinic student is the Torah. So in the Old Testament, neither Moses, nor the kings, nor the various men of God, nor the prophets call people to follow them. They are instructed to follow the ways of God, to walk in His ways, to live according to His statutes. And here, Jesus is calling these four men to follow Him. Not the Torah. Not quote-unquote God's ways. Not the traditions. 
He is commanding them to follow Him. He will show them the way they need to go. And most certainly, as they follow Him, they will be following the ways of God, which was radically different from rabbinic traditions or teachings of the religious leaders of the days of Jesus, of Andrew and Peter and of James and of John. I think it's a fascinating reality that Jesus called them not to study, not to follow the Torah, but to follow Him. As the, as the Messiah, under His messianic authority, He commands them to follow. He commands them to follow Him. And letter C, which is very unique in this, is the preparation for following. Unlike rabbinic candidates... The fishermen are not required to do anything before they became followers of Jesus. They don't need to exhibit knowledge of the Torah. They don't don't need to pass a qualifying exam. They don't have to properly recite the Ten Commandments or name the kings or recite any part of Israel's history. There is no preparation required in order to follow Jesus as their rabbi. They are going to learn all they need to learn just by following Jesus. You know what that tells me? It tells me that when we are saved and we understand the call to follow Him, there is no preparation required to follow. Now we're going to see the result of that, but you don't have to get rid of a certain sin. You don't have to commit to a certain amount of attendance at the church. You don't have to sign a contract to give a certain amount of money. You don't have to do that to be a follower of Christ. What do you do? You say, there you are. You're going to lead the way. And I'm going to follow you. That's all the preparation that is required. This command that Jesus issues to follow... To follow Him without any preparation is rooted in His messianic authority. He is the only one that could ever call anyone to do such a thing. If you engage in a discipling relationship with another individual, you better follow the teachings of that of, of Jesus and not the teachings of that individual. You want to emulate the life of Christ, not the life of the individual who is helping you to learn more about God's ways. Another interesting thing to note here is that there are no underlying miracles to convince James and John and Peter and Andrew to follow him. There is no debate about the importance of it. There is no need for persuasion. Jesus simply calls and they follow. You'll note that they were not looking for Jesus the day they were called. They were simply busy doing what they had been doing for years and years and years. But Jesus was looking for them. So as mentioned earlier, Jesus had plans for them and they had no idea what was involved in those plans. They began to get an inkling of it when He showed up that day on the Sea of Galilee and said, hey... Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So number two in our outline, number one, as we see, is the call to follow. Number two here is the call to serve. Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. 
These men had spent a majority of their lives, probably from the time they were able to get in a boat and do anything with a net or anything with a pole, these men had been in the water for the majority of their lives, surrounded by fish, surrounded by nets, surrounded by hooks, surrounded by all of the paraphernalia that was associated with professional commercial fishing. They worked from dawn to dusk in a grueling, physically demanding job. And here Jesus was calling them to serve Him. Now Mark records that Jesus says, I will make you become fishers of men, which is more literal to what it actually says in the Greek language. Now they knew how to catch fish, but they didn't know how to catch men. From the time they were old enough to be in a boat, their parents, their fathers, their older brothers were teaching them how to catch fish. And now in a single utterance of Jesus, the entirety of their life was about to change because they're being called to fish for men and they know nothing about what it means to fish for men. The result of following Jesus, the purpose of becoming a disciple, is to serve Him... And the way that Jesus calls them to serve Him is fishing for men. Now, I don't know about you, I've never been in any body of water where anybody was ever out there with a net or a pole or a boat thrown into the water trying to catch a man. Have you ever seen that? Doesn't happen. Some girls go to college trying to catch a man. Totally different thing here. The result of following Jesus, the purpose in becoming a disciple, is to serve Him by becoming fishers of men. Make no mistake, for these men and for us today, becoming a follower, becoming a disciple is difficult. As we read through the gospel narratives... We recognize that these disciples didn't always understand what it meant to be a follower. We don't either. They often weren't as faithful as they needed to be, and we aren't either. They often failed, just as we do. They often lost sight of their purpose, just as we do. We are all deficient in some phase of our discipleship, and as God reveals that to us, we should repent and submit to His call to follow Him. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about this fishing thing in just a moment. Thirdly, in this call is the call to prioritize. Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed Him. What does that word immediately mean? They didn't finish the day. They didn't haul in the net. They didn't clean up the boat. They didn't go back home and talk with Dad and the other brothers and family members about the fishing enterprise and what was going to happen. They left their boats immediately. The life to which Jesus calls disciples requires, listen to this, it requires a fundamental change of perspective. 
It doesn't mean that you have to change your vocation, but the call to be a disciple of Jesus means that there is a fundamental change of perspective. To have in mind the things of God rather than the things of self. To be honest, we are typically more preoccupied with ourselves than we are the purposes of God and the plans He has for us. We're preoccupied with school, a career, starting a family, raising a family, getting rid of a family. We're preoccupied with finances. We're preoccupied with our health. We're busy thinking about retirement. We're focused on leisure. We're preoccupied with politics. There are so many things that will preoccupy our time and our attention and even our affection more so than what it means to be a follower of Christ. But but if we are truly focused on being a disciple then we are going to be singularly focused on this perspective of Him and not ourselves. So here's the question. Are we truly focused on being a disciple? Are we truly focused on serving Him? Are we engaged in the battle to follow Him as He has described? Now, there is a sense in which the call to these four men and the other disciples is unique and that they would become apostles and carry upon their shoulders a tremendous responsibility in birthing the church. But our call to discipleship requires nothing less from us than a total commitment to Him, a fundamental change and our perspective of life. Jesus Himself would say in Luke 9.23, if anyone wishes to come after Me or to follow Him, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Him. To be a disciple is to be a follower. To be a follower is to be a fisherman. To be a fisherman is to engage ourselves in the work of the kingdom of God. And the primary work of the kingdom of God is to serve Him by fishing for men. Now a fisherman is always trying to catch something. Can you spend countless hours casting a hook into the water, and I doubt you've ever done it just for the sheer joy of throwing a hook into the water, saying, boy, this is a lot of fun. I don't think I'll catch a fish. I don't really want to catch a fish. I don't even care if I catch a fish. I just like throwing my hook out in the water. It's just a lot of fun. Have you ever done that? Fishermen always want to catch something. A fish, a crab, a lobster, whatever it is out there in the water, they want to catch something. So as a disciple of Christ, what is it that we are trying to catch? Now, I'll pause to say this is very convicting to me personally, because most of the time I'm trying to catch more information. I'm trying to catch more insight. I'm trying to catch things that are outside of the primary purpose of a disciple, of a follower, and that is to engage in the work of the kingdom in catching fish. Now, preaching and teaching and serving is all a part of God's kingdom, but it isn't the primary part of God's kingdom. 
What is it that we that we're trying to catch? Are we in fact trying to catch anything at all, or are we just moving through life from paycheck to paycheck, month to month, stage of life to stage of life? Next shiny object to next shiny object, next vacation to next vacation. What is it that we are actually trying to catch? What defines the purpose of our lives as Christians? Now I want to read this. It's a fairly lengthy essay. I think it's an easy listen. It was a very easy read. It was a very convicting read. And it's called The Parable of the Fishless Fisherman. Greg shared this with me some months ago. And here's what it says. This is fictitious, but it's very profound. Now it came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish, and the fish were hungry. Year after year, these who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about their call to fish, the abundance of fish, and how they might actually go about fishing. Continually, they searched for new and better definitions of fishing. They sponsored costly nationwide and worldwide congresses to discuss fishing and to promote fishing and hear about all the ways of fishing. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however, they didn't fish. They organized a board to send out fishermen to where there were many fish. The board was formed by those who had the great vision and courage to speak about fishing, to define fishing, and to promote the idea of fishing. And faraway streams and lakes where many other fish of different colors lived. Also, the board hired staffs and appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing, and to decide what new streams should be thought about. But the staff and committee members did not fish. Expensing training centers were built to teach fishermen how to fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology, but the teachers did not fish. They only taught fishing. Year after year, graduates were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters filled with fish. Further, the fishermen built large printing houses to publish fishing guides. A speaker's bureau was also provided to schedule special speakers on the subject of fishing. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded and were sent to fish, but like the fishermen back home, they never fished. Some also said they wanted to be part of the fishing party, but they felt called to furnish fishing equipment. Others felt their job was to relate to the fish in a good way, so the fish would know the difference between good and bad fishermen. After one stirring meeting on the necessity of fishing... A young fellow left the meeting and went fishing. The next day he reported he had caught two outstanding fish and he was honored for his excellent catch and scheduled to visit all the big meetings possible to tell how he did it. So he quit his fishing in order to have time to tell about the experience to other fishermen. He was also placed on the fisherman's general board as a person having considerable experience. Now, it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. 
Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen's clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen yet never fished. They wondered about those who felt it was of little use to attend their weekly meetings to talk about fishing. After all, were they not following the master who said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men? Imagine how hurt some of them, excuse me, imagine how hurt some were one day when a person suggested that those who didn't catch fish were really not fishermen. No matter how much they claimed to be, yet it didn't sound correct. Is a person a fisherman if year after year he never catches a fish? Pretty interesting, isn't it? Now, I would never go so far to say that you are not a Christian if you have never led someone to Christ or if you have never shared your faith with another individual. But I would say this, if you've never led someone to Christ or if you've never shared your faith with someone else, there is a deficiency in your discipleship. If that is true of us, our service to the Savior is incomplete. So if I were to ask you, and please don't raise your hand, this is a rhetorical question, because the other rhetorical question you're not going to want to raise your hand for. If I were to ask you, is evangelism important? Virtually every person would say, oh yeah, it's really important. It's the Great Commission. That's why Jesus came. He came to seek and save the lost, right? If I were to ask you, when was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? Have you shared with, have you shared the gospel with someone in the last week, the last month, the last year? Have you ever shared the gospel with someone? What would you say? Statistics and research continue to say that 95%, 95% of professing Christians have never led someone to the Lord. Statistics and research continue to affirm that 95% of professing Christians have never led someone to the Lord. Why the discrepancy? If if evangelism, if the good news of Jesus Christ is so important, then why are so few Christians sharing their faith? Is it because people aren't interested in the gospel? Is it because people are repeatedly not responding to the gospel? Is it because the Great Commission is no longer great? Or is it perhaps the antithesis of what Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Are we ashamed? Are we ill-equipped? Are we ill-prepared? Why the discrepancy between the numbers of people who never share their faith and the masses who would agree that evangelism is important? So as we explore the subject of evangelism over these next few weeks, I think it's important that we have some common definitions. So here is a very basic, a very rudimentary definition for evangelism. Are you ready? Evangelism is telling anyone, anywhere the gospel. 
telling anyone anywhere the gospel is evangelism. Now, the Nine Marks books uses a different definition, equally as good. They say teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Now, that's a great definition. Nothing wrong with that. So, evangelism is telling anyone anywhere the gospel. So, that leads us to the question of, well, what then is the gospel? We need a definition for the gospel, don't we? Here is the definition that we're going to use for the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus' perfect life, substitutionary death, victorious resurrection, and glorious ascension into heaven. Now, what I said is briefer than what is on the screen, and you really don't need to add all the adjectives into these terms. But the gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Do you know those truths? What can we say about those truths? How would we be able to package those truths in a way that we could very quickly and concisely communicate that to someone else? There is a common saying that has been attributed to many different pastors over the years. And originally it was assigned to Francis of Assisi, and that's been debunked. He didn't really ever say this. But here's the common saying that has been uttered and I believe adopted by the masses of Christianity, and that is this. Preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. And you know what people hear about that? Well, I don't have to preach words in order to preach the gospel. I only have to speak the words if, in fact, it is necessary. So the conclusion that many draw is, others out there are going to be able to observe my life, my actions, and my words, and they're going to be so drawn to Christ that I won't have to say a thing. Now, has that ever happened to you? Has anybody ever come up to you and said, Oh, you have emulated the life of Christ in such a marvelous way that I don't even have to ask if you're a Christian. I can just tell that you are. What must I do to be saved? I've never heard that happening before, ever, anywhere. Here's the bottom line. Preaching the gospel without words is impossible. It's impossible. You can't preach the good news of Jesus Christ without words. Now, I suppose you could sign language it, but you're still communicating vocabulary that someone is going to be able to understand. When we share the gospel, we are telling someone about who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and why they need to give serious consideration to these truths. Now, our Nine Marks book tells us that there is no evangelism without words. So in order to be evangelistic, we must talk. Me telling you that I'm a pastor and was saved in 1983 is not sharing the gospel. You telling someone that you're a Christian is not sharing the gospel. Our salvation is a testimony about Jesus, about what He has done for us, but it is not the gospel of Jesus. Our inviting someone to church is not sharing the gospel. Our saying to someone, God bless you, 
Or God loves you is not sharing the gospel. Our living a clean, moral life is not sharing the gospel. Our helping to alleviate human suffering in the name of Jesus is not sharing the gospel. You could stand out on 842 and hand out a million bottles of water and you would never lead anybody to Christ apart from speaking the gospel message. The change that comes in our lives or the good and kind things that we do for others as a result of our salvation is not the gospel message. All of those things are about us and they're not about Jesus. Sharing our testimony, inviting someone to church, helping those in need can become opportunities to tell others the gospel of Jesus Christ. But those things in and of themselves are not the gospel message. You've heard of the social gospel, isn't that right? The social gospel where you go and you feed the hungry in the name of Jesus. Or you go and clothe the naked in the name of Jesus. Or you go and shelter those without shelter in the name of Jesus. But that's not the gospel message. The gospel message is the good news of Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection. If we are not saying that, we are not sharing the gospel. Now, there's another term that we need to be clear on, and it may not make as much sense now, but I think it will over the next several weeks, and that important definition and distinction is missions. Generally speaking, missions is crossing cultures to share the gospel. Now I'm going to read for you a very brief definition that John Piper gives as it relates to missions, and this should help us to make some sense about why the distinction. Missions usually involves, this is John Piper, missions usually involves learning a language, learning new cultural practices, going to where there is no church or where they don't have any access to the gospel, end quote. That, generally speaking, is what missions is. Now, we could say that all of missions, crossing cultures to share the gospel, is to be evangelistic, but not all evangelism is missional, requiring the crossing of a culture to share the gospel. Now, many, many pastors with great intentions have said, you are missionaries and out there is the mission field. Well, in a sense, I understand what he's saying. I would say we're not missionaries. We are ministers. We're ambassadors of Christ. We are to go and tell. We are to be light in the darkness. We are to be salt in the decrepit state of sin. We are to speak the good news out into a lost world. Now, to the extent that we go into an unchurched place that has no access to the gospel, then perhaps we are missionaries. Now, Sue gets a kick out of telling me this, telling me this, and I'm going to ask her to say this again. Sue, what is the basic square area of Coatesville? 1.9 miles, and how many churches are in that 1.9 miles? 78. Don't tell me you're going to go to Coatesville and start a mission. There's plenty of access to the gospel in Coatesville. There's plenty of access to the gospel here in Chester County, in Pennsylvania, in the United States. There are many, many parts of the world where there is little to no access to the gospel, and those are the missionaries. So, missions is to be evangelistic, but evangelism is not necessarily missions. It can be, but it isn't necessarily that way. Now, I want to say this, and this is why it's important to point this out. 
there is also a distinction between missions and missionaries. Missionaries are the people who go and share the gospel to an unreached people group or those, excuse me, those who share the gospel to an unreached people group. Missionaries are not those who serve or help support the work of missionaries. Let me say that again. A missionary is one who goes to share the gospel. Those who support the work of the missionary are they themselves not missionaries. The person here in the States that prays, that gives, that maybe sends care packages, you're not a missionary. You're simply supporting a missionary. And this is why this distinction is very, very important. When we support someone who is doing the work of evangelism, sharing the gospel intentionally and specifically with people, that doesn't make me an evangelist because I send them a few bucks to do that. Do you see the distinction? We are evangelistic when we ourselves are sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to somebody who is not in a saving relationship with Him. We support evangelistic efforts through our prayers and through our giving. In the same way, we support missionary endeavors through our prayers and through our giving, but we are not missionaries. Now, there's a lot more that could be said, a lot more that needs to be said. I'm always reminded of this. You can never say everything that needs to be said. Not this week and not at the end of our four weeks together as we look at this topic of evangelism. But here's what I want to focus on this morning. When you were saved, when you said yes to the gospel of Christ, you became a follower of Jesus Christ. In our mutual following of Jesus Christ, He has commanded us to be disciples. To be a disciple means we engage in the work of the kingdom. There's lots that we can do to support the work of the kingdom. We can pray. We can give. We can sit in the corner where no one sees or no one hears and help. But the primary work of the kingdom of God is to fish for lost souls. It's to grab your rod. It's to bait it with the... With the message of the good news of Christ, it's to go out there where the streams and the lakes and the ponds are filled with hungry fish, and it's to throw your hook and leave the results to God. And we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. You could buy you the biggest, shiniest bass boat that was for sale. You could have state-of-the-art equipment. You could have all the newest technology and wardrobe. And you could go sit out in the boat for hours and hours on end. But you are not a fisherman until you throw that hook in the water. What are you doing with your hook that contains the life-changing truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Father, thank